Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Thursday, July 12th of 2012, and tonight our guest is Jay Levy. He is the author of Homeless Narratives and Pretreatment Pathways, and also Homeless Outreach and Housing First. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Jay Levy, Master of Social Work. Uh, he's been working in the field of homeless outreach for uh, a couple decades now, 20, 30 years. He's here with us right now. We're going to bring him on. Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's uh, fantastic to be on your show, Ken. Well, it's great to have you here. I've been reading your books, and they're very, very impressive. And, um, well, the first one is called Homeless Narratives and Pretreatment Pathways. What does pretreatment pathways mean? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in doing the work, I, when I first started out doing the work, I felt very um, frustrated by uh, kind of the limited options uh, that people had who were homeless to get the help that they that they needed. Um, many of the programs that were offered had all sorts of uh, eligibility criteria uh, attached to them, and instead of really getting to know people, beginning to you know understand their stories and to work pathways toward help, uh, toward the resources and the services. Uh, that they needed based on that person's world and what would make sense in their world. I like to say a, a big part of pretreatment is asking ourselves, what will resonate in the person's world? When we make an offer, are we really providing a choice that they can consider, or are we kind of cutting them off by giving them pre-programmed choices that they may not be ready to accept? So a pretreatment pathway is, is a way of uh, a person being able to get the help that they need and not having a lot of uh, requirements up front for them to have to uh, kind of you know, like hoops to to go through in order to get the help that they need. So we get away from eligibility criteria, and we begin where the client is at. Now, when you approach someone as an outreach counselor or someone on the street, what are some of the first things that you do to approach them, you know, without scaring them off? Yes, well, what I like to talk about uh, around the whole pretreatment model is um, the foundation of that model is the engagement process. So it's all about relationship formation. We kind of break that down into stages of engagement. And the very first thing we're trying to do is just to get an initial uh, communication going that's accepted uh, by the person. And sometimes that involves... Um, 
you know, offering a neat item to a person. You know, not everybody you meet that's in the shelters or on the streets want to necessarily uh, talk to an outreach worker uh, for various reasons, uh, because of the trauma they've been through or uh, because of uh, the bad experiences they've had while living in the shelter system or even with other helpers. They they might have already decided uh, as you're approaching them that this person can't help me or I want nothing to do with that person. So from the very beginning, we're trying to show that we're a safe presence, we're a welcoming uh, presence, we're not there to judge, um, and we're really going to focus on just getting an initial conversation going, a communication going, and we call that pre-engagement. It's it's the first step. Um, As we get into engagement, what we're doing is beginning to define our roles, talking about uh, the kind of services we're connected to, how we can help. But at the same time, we're really listening in to where the person's at, what are their ideas, values, what kind of words do they like to use. And we're kind of jumping off of that to get to the point of hopefully making some goals uh, with the person. And it's important that those goals resonate in the person's world. It's goals that they want to own. Very often those goals are centered on wanting to get housed, which, again, is why it might be a pre-treatment pathway. Um, it's not necessarily the goal to get, you know, to go to AA or to get alcohol treatment or to um, get treatment for your mental illness. So we start with some very basic kinds of goals, whether it's um, to be warm at night or to have access to food or to, you know, kind of the immediacy needs that are out there, survival-based needs, and build from there toward other things, hopefully housing and, uh, and hopefully treatment. Now, are some uh, homeless populations easier to reach and some more difficult? It doesn't depend on how long they've been homeless. Well, it's 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 certainly not a one size uh, fits all. Everybody's different. Um, there are some ways of thinking of it in terms of folks who um, are are more newly introduced to the shelter system. They might be at a stage where they're having a you know a real difficult time just adjusting to the shelter. So you can kind of take advantage of that in your work and be there as someone that's going to introduce them to kind of the system that's all built around homelessness and where to get the resources and find the services and to be safe. And you might find that a person in their struggle of transition and adaptation might be very open to those kinds of offerings. You know, someone who's been homeless for many years, however, maybe they already know the homeless system um, very well. They've also had their up up and down experiences within it, probably a lot of trauma. Um, They're going to look at things probably a bit differently. And I meet people, quite frankly, who are afraid to hope. I mean, they're they're just out there. And, you know, any kind of new hope is sort of a setup for for disappointment, uh, you know, you get to a point if you're if you're homeless for many years, that you may feel like uh, nothing's really going to change, and uh, and you and you and at that point you probably have you know in some ways adapted to homelessness, and uh, and also maybe have even found some some kind of meaning within that world, and then that's a whole other level that the uh, outreach worker needs to be able to kind of tap into and understand. Well, I think the the brain is very adaptive. Um, there's lots of talk about neuroplasticity these days. And I'm going to speak about my own experiences a little bit. I was homeless for two years. 
And then afterwards, um, you know, I did get employed finally and started moving out of that situation. But um, you know, I I know that my that my brain adapted to the homeless system I was living in, and it was actually a protective mechanism. But when I got out, things like trying to get a telephone, try to open a bank account, uh, try to contact people, uh, I was so afraid to do any of these things. Well, you know, the, my brain was shut off somehow protectively and saying, no, I can't do this. I can't do these. I can't do this. It was extreme. These were extreme mental hurdles for me to overcome after having adopted to that homeless lifestyle, that living in a shelter lifestyle. Yes, I think, I mean, I think really certain skills that you might have had, let's say, prior to becoming homeless uh, begin to erode in some ways because you're, you're out in this whole other world that you have to get used to. And it really is, you know, there's a whole different set of uh, values. It's kind of a different culture in a way uh, to deal with. Um, you know, there's a lot of immediacy needs that, that's very important in terms of just where you're going to sleep each night. And, uh, you know, if, you know, they have, I, I don't know if you experienced this when, when you were homeless, but they have these various programs like, uh, you know, work programs where you can get, like, temporary work for the day, and it's kind of, you know, people come by in a van and pick you up, and, you know, you get paid one day at a time, and so you have a little bit of change in your pocket, but it's just enough to get by, and then you have to deal with the other people within your social network, perhaps, um, which is a whole other set of uh, challenges, especially uh, if you're among other people who might be drinking, using... Um, who knows what? So there's a lot of people from all walks of life uh, that are kind of in these homeless situations. Not everybody uh, has addiction. Uh, there's some people with uh, mental health, mental illness concerns. There's quite a few people out there with medical concerns. And frankly, you know, my job uh, has been very centered on working with the long-term homeless and people who are often experiencing all three of those things, you know, addiction, uh, mental illness, um, and uh, and medical concerns, and those are the folks uh, that in many ways are the most vulnerable among us to not have a home and yet be experiencing all three of those things is, is extraordinarily uh, difficult, and, and your life is, is, is literally at risk, and, there, and there's a number of studies um, that have in fact shown that. Now, what is the difference between the housing-first approach and the treatment-first approach? Well, there's a number of programs that have been set up based on, you know, once you agree to a, to a treatment path as opposed to a pre-treatment path, which is what I talk about in my book, um, then you can access the housing. So the housing, what they're basically saying is if you're ready to say that you're willing to be sober and perhaps enter a detox first and prove your sobriety, then you could go into this uh, social model halfway house that'll address your addiction issues. Uh, if you have a major mental illness, if you're willing to stand up and say, yes, I have a uh, major mental illness, I have schizophrenia or whatever it is, I'm willing to apply to the Department of Mental Health for uh, eligibility, well, then maybe you can get into some housing with support services uh, through the Department of Mental Health. For the longest time, all of these programs were compliance-based, which also meant you didn't. not only did you have to comply in order to get into these programs, 
But in addition, um, once you are in the program, if you were to use or if you were to go off your medications, if you had a mental illness, um, you could easily get kicked out of these programs. And the real crime that I think happened, and we really saw this build as, as, as a major problem in, in the homeless world, um, is that you had all these people that were running through these programs, leaving for various reasons, often being kicked out because they relapsed. You also had a number of people who could never gain entrance to the program because they weren't willing for a number of reasons to commit to sobriety. And so you had this growing population of people who were on the streets and in the shelters, and homelessness wasn't really getting um, resolved. And on top of that, we were starting to see very high mortality rates, uh, particularly the people living on the streets, but also in the shelters. You know, it wasn't uncommon to find people, you know, dying in their beds um, at the shelters. And so Housing First really came about as a uh, a harm reduction model of uh, of dealing with the issue of homelessness. And we literally knew from some of the research that we saw. Uh, um, James O'Connell did some really important research uh, where he looked at mortality rates and um, created a vulnerability index uh, for people who were uh, homeless and living outside six months or more. And he found that people with HIV and living outside uh, for six months or more over a five-year period uh, 40% of that population uh, would die if someone was over 60 years old living outside. 40% of those people would die if someone had trimorbidity, meaning um, mental illness, substance abuse, uh, and a major medical condition. 40% of that population would die if somebody had cirrhosis of the liver. 40% would die. So you had people dying at, uh, you know, pretty alarming rates when, when, you, when you think of it. And the average age of death was, was 47 years old. And we basically said, you know, we have to do something about this. And, uh, and the Housing First movement, I would like to think, uh, came, came about because of that concern. But to be truthful, I think there was also a secondary, and perhaps it's the primary reason, that Housing First uh, came about, and that is that they also realized that there was some uh, considerable physical uh, savings that could be had uh, by by going by doing a Housing First model, because all of these people, uh, through getting housing with a with a real good support service around it, and not having any preconditions, we just get you in the housing and give the support service. You can save a lot of money because a lot of those folks don't end up then as often in emergency rooms and on hospital units. Over time, we are actually able to bridge a number of these people over to treatment. And again, there's been some pretty good studies uh, to show the efficacy of this. Uh, Sam Sembaris, uh was really the father of kind of the homeless uh, housing first movement out of New York City. He's a professor at NYU. Uh, he did a number of studies on this, as did, um, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Wang and James O'Connell. So uh, I think uh, this has really started to uh, catch on and even have uh, people from the medical industry that are trying to control costs looking at housing first as a good way of uh, dealing with homelessness and and connecting that literally to people's health plans as being able to bill for a support worker once you get someone housed. Okay, I'm going to do a little plug here because we did an interview with 
Sam Zambaris about a year ago on the show. Okay. It's in the archives, so anybody that wants to go and listen to the old show, it's there. I think the title was Housing First. Excellent. So, um, yeah, when I was in the shelter, I was in wet housing. Actually, I was in the one that was in the New York Times not too long ago, the St. Anthony House in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, um, you know, it did save a lot of money for from people, you know, trying to spend the winter in detox, which is very expensive, or going to the ER all the time. Um, there were some problems there. One was that the... There was no way out. I mean, you you could not work on the books because they wanted you to turn over 100% of your paycheck to the house. There was no way to save for an apartment. And they said, well, if you want to do that, you need to... Uh, you need to transfer to the Christian Recovery Center program here, which is abstinence-based and 12-step. And I said, the reason I'm here is because I said I will have nothing to do with the 12 steps because they are against my religion and they drive me to drink. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I can very much connect to that. And, you know, I think so many of the people we meet, um, first of all, you know, when, when folks are homeless, you know, one of the things they have... Uh, going for them in a way is is your autonomy i mean and we all we all connect to our autonomy the importance of our freedom and and you know that's priceless you you hate to kind of give that up and that's one of the rules of engagement you know when you engage with someone we're really looking to build trust and always respect um someone's autonomy so instead of having like a pre-programmed menu of you know you should be going to aa or you should be um um you know connecting to religion or um, or you need to uh, be seeing a counselor for mental health or do a detox first or whatever it is, we believe you really have to start with um, where the person's at. And they're gonna, the people that we meet are really the experts on their world. And you're going to connect to that person's world. You're going to understand uh, what's important to them, what they value. And from there, we can start uh, to come up with a plan. So we know, you know, we know some basic things that are important, like uh, a person getting some structure in their lives. So the, the the point is, you know, how do you find meaningful structure? That doesn't have to be AA. It could be, you know, all sorts of other options. You know, based on maybe what the person's done in their history, or or what they're open to. If you have something new to offer that that resonates well in their world. Yeah, one of the things I was doing to keep myself sane and not get drunk all the time, I was volunteering at the Needle Exchange program in uh, Minneapolis, and that was a really good experience for me. Hmm. Fantastic, yeah. And that's a classic harm reduction program, of course. And That's what I think. I think kind of the, the, one of the real things we try to do when we do harm reduction is this notion of um, that it gives us a chance to offer someone in need a need item, you know, like a needle. It's a chance to engage and to provide education and to alert them to other pathways if they decide one day that maybe they want to live their lives a little differently than than being an IV drug user at the time and, you know, explaining to them that opportunity. But it's a chance for them to engage with the worker and, and to build that trust. And at the same time, it helps the community, right, because um, mm-hmm. the chances of HIV being passed on or AIDS being passed on to another person uh, is diminished by that kind of programming. So it's really a win-win in helping the individual, providing the education, kind of going from that pre-contemplative stage, maybe if you think in terms of change model, the contemplation, 
to really starting to, to maybe even get into preparation in time toward toward some avenues that might be more productive for the person based on you know ultimately what their goals and aspirations are but but you can't do that without knowing someone um first and meeting them where they're at which in your case was was giving someone a clean needle as I was saying to you before we started the show, I really like this book a lot, and I would like to see it on every therapist's bookshelf because I think it is so essential to respect the autonomy of your client and you know to listen to what the client has to say and you know it's a collaboration between a therapist and a client of you know what the goal is the therapist doesn't decide ahead of time they told me in school this is the goal and this is where we have to put people it's it's not a bunch of round holes where you have to put all your square pegs yes we really want to get away from the whole kind of fast food menu <laughs> mentality that somehow has, has come about in the world of uh, working with people and doing uh, therapy or clinical work and you know, when I think of pre-treatment, there, there's five basic principles that we really uh, focus upon. One, as we mentioned, is, is relationship formation, and I think in terms of stages of engagement and eventually getting to that point of contracting and setting goals that the client can own. Uh, the second uh, principle is common language construction, and it's really important to uh, think of that in terms of stage, stages, that is understanding a per person's words, ideas, and values. And then utilizing some of those same words, I like to say that we develop a playground of language, and it's a mutual playground that we both go on to, which is, which is, which consists basically of those words that's being spoken up and back, and are being accepted and mutually kind of agreed upon through our conversations and our continued welcome connection. And then it's off of those words and that understanding that we can begin to. Uh, bridge the language is a stage of utilizing language which is um, you know I worked with a client for instance um, who saw me as a counselor and liked doing counseling with me but when I went to connect him to a mental health clinic he got hung up on the word therapist because in his house of language the word therapist meant literally like the way it was spelt the rapist and he thought of therapy as being like a uh, a kind of mind rape where people would extract things against your will from you. And he thought of even getting medications as kind of like a mind control. So that's where he was at in his world, and I had to connect to that and respect that and to come back around to talking about him seeing a counselor and away from the notion of therapist and support the transition eventually to him going to a clinic because he was interested in getting counseling in the way that I was doing counseling with him. So I had to find someone at the mental health clinic that would do a similar type of counseling, come from more of kind of a narrative uh, perspective with it, and uh, and was willing uh, to be very sensitive to this person's world and the languaging that he did. Um, and that's really the third principle, which is supporting transitions. You know, these are all kind of universal principles of care. You know, how do we support transitions for people, whether it's to a new person, whether it's to a new idea, whether it's to a new environment, whether it's to housing or treatment or whatever it is, um, that's something we need to keep uh, front and center in our work. And then uh, fourth, uh, we look at um, the stages of change that we talked a little bit about, you know, helping someone to go from pre-contemplation to contemplation to action. And then the fifth principle is uh, safety. It's enhancing safety, and we do that from both a harm reduction 
kind of stance and uh, and type of work that we do, as well as crisis intervention as it's needed. So I just wanted to quickly uh, get that in there, which is the five principles of pretreatment. Yeah, that's a really excellent set of principles. And I'm going to look at a, a little more at a couple of things you just mentioned with those five. Um, one was building a common language, and uh, you've had quite a few examples in your book about that. You want to talk about that a little more, some examples? Well, sure. Um, one of the things, one of the people I met um, very early on in doing my work, uh, his name was was Andrew, and he lived in a shelter out in, uh, in Dorchester. And when I first uh, met him at the shelter, it took a while before he would even begin to connect with me and build the trust. But, And he didn't trust me that much, but he was willing one day to talk with me a little bit. And the conversation basically went along the lines of him letting me know that he was mentally murdered and um, and also that um, he no longer played the game. And, you know, those were the two things that he would say over and over again in the conversation. And he was basically saying he wanted nothing to do with me. If he was going to, if he saw a dollar on the street, he'd say, "I'm not going to pick it up because that's what they want me to do." You know, the USA stands for Use Andrew. This is a guy who was homeless 18 years. Um, so what happened over time is, you know, in that first conversation, he ended kind of laughing and saying, "Look, I'm going to get back to my research. I'm busy." And for me, that was the great opportunity because that was what we call in, in narrative circles a sparkling moment. He referred to something that wasn't um, problem-laden, and it was something that I could grab onto and say, well, tell me a little bit more about your research. And that's how I opened up our next conversation. And that kind of got the engagement going. But it was really starting with something that he mentioned, something that he threw out into the playground of language, his research. And then from there, I was able to ask him some questions about mental murder, like, well, what does mental murder mean to you? I'd like to understand it a little bit. And he began to open up and tell me a little bit about his world and what it meant. And I very quickly was able to pick up that mental murder in his language was very akin to the psych language of trauma. And I began to build a bridge uh, in working on the uh, how those two words can be linked. And from there we were able to talk about that really he had been through a lot, and a lot of trauma through 18 years of homelessness, and then connected that uh, to wouldn't he like to do his research somewhere and have like an office space or an apartment or someplace that would be quiet, which he really wanted, and that became his goal. It was a goal he took ownership over. But then he said to me, how can I afford that? How can I possibly afford that? And we connected that to the world of SSA and benefits, Social Security benefits. But now we had to deal with in that world, that language, that house of language at Social Security, they use the word disability a lot. So I actually had the bridge from mental murder to trauma to disability and how all those words had something in common. And the meaning for him was that, you know, he really qualified uh, for some monies based on his history and based on the oppression that he felt he had gone through. And so, you know, that's a small example um, it's much more detailed in the book, um, but it's this idea that we're working with different houses of language, and we have to understand the house of language of the person we're working with, as well as the house of language of the treatment providers 
um, and a house of language of, uh, of getting benefits and the house of language of applying for housing and build those bridges. I mean, that's a lot of the work that we do as outreach workers. We're kind of the interpreters that go into the world and meet with the client, understand their world, and then understand all these other worlds and give people real choices that they can consider. Because if we just go with the language and we don't do any of the bridging, and we just tell people, do you want to apply for disability? Of course, they say, no way. You know, they say, I'm not disabled. I noticed uh, in the book, one of the people referred to psychiatric medications as zombie pills. And uh, this isn't in the book, but I just want to ask you offhand, do you think that uh, some of the mentally ill are over-medicated? Oh, there's no doubt that, that some are, and... Um, you know, it's no doubt that the person that referred to it as zombie pills probably had a, a bad experience on medications. And it's not just the level that it can sedate you, but it's often the uh, side effects uh, that can come as a result of it. Some people gain lots of weight. Uh, some people have what, what people will call side effects. They end up with major medical issues like diabetes. Um so there's no doubt that there's a lot of issues with the diff with the variety of psychotropic meds that are used and prescribed, um, but there's also no doubt that it can help some people uh, under the right circumstances. So, you know, I, I think what you probably noticed in the book is there really wasn't a lot on medications because a lot of the work I did uh, is prior to people getting medicated. I might be connecting to their history. In, in some stories here and there, someone does go inpatient and they're put on a medication or I connect them to uh, a clinic and a medication becomes part of their world. But it's really only at a point that they're, that they're ready for it, uh, and, and it's not so much um, based on like it's a requirement to get into a program. Okay, I'm going to mention another earlier show we did with Robert Whitaker, and he's uh done a lot of studies of these medications and he's his conclusion was that there's a place in Finland where they seem to have got a really good balance between minimal medication and lots of psychosocial treatment that seems to be yeah. very effective rather than just, you know, literally drugging people into insensibility all the time. Well, I yeah, I think it's but I think the problem is when when people look at medication as as the first thing to be doing uh, rather than as maybe something that could be part of what we do and maybe even, you know, something that's really looked at later on if the purse, if it makes sense uh, to go down that road. But I, I think uh, even with major mental illness, and I think I'm aware of what you're bringing up in terms of in Finland, um, what they're doing, it, it's really quite a lot of, of outreach and uh, allowing people to really explain and talk about what they're going through as opposed to trying to medicate those kinds of things away. So if they're hearing voices, for instance, they can talk about the voices they're hearing and maybe what it means to them and their fears and ways of coping and and all sorts of things. Uh, there, there's a whole, it's a very rich area to get into once you meet people where they're at and connect to their meaning in the world. You're going to find that that meaning, that meaning, is really constructed of a number of things, from a person's culture to a person's values to a person's mental illness, perhaps, uh, to a person's aspirations, to their fears, to their circumstance. All of that goes into the story that they construct. So to get to a place where you don't really want to listen to that story and instead you want to medicate, I think is wrong-headed. 
that makes sense to me. I think let's look next at Butch's story. You want to tell us about that? Well, that's a pretty uh, lengthy story. I will just say, uh, as an example of meaning making, um, when I met Butch, uh, eventually once I had his trust, he took me down uh, to the river where he was living, and he had a very impressive campsite uh, set up, uh, an area where he had a a fire and a a tent that was very secure and a clothesline, and he would bathe in the river. And so he was really together uh, in terms of being able to live outside and being able to deal with the elements. He was also a big-time drinker. And um, and he saw himself as a real survivalist, and he, and he was very isolative. In other words, he didn't have a lot of friends that would hang out at the campsite and drink with him. He just sort of did his own thing, very avoidant in some ways. And uh, so in his world, he was uh, kind of content and proud of his survival skills. Uh, But the other big piece I quickly discovered is he had a memorial set up um, that was to his friend. It was like some rocks and a a kind of a carving that he had done on some wood of his friend's name. And he had told me the story uh, that his friend used to live uh, right around that area near his campsite and drowned in the river right by where Butch would bathe and stay and and live by. And, um, and so he looked at it like he was the guardian to his friend's uh, gravesite. And he took that on as a very, very uh, kind of profound uh, thing. It was very important to him uh, to continue to do that. So, again, you know, it sort of puts the outreach worker in a position that if you're offering someone, let's say, like a room to live in, and they're they're trying to choose between this room and being the guardian to a sacred uh, burial ground, which is how Butch saw what he was doing. You know, the room pales in meaning to that, and, and Butch wanted nothing to do with the room. He wanted to continue to live his life. He was someone that could go out and can, you know, he would say... Canning is my bread and butter, which means collecting cans and then turning them in to get the deposit back on it. And he goes, and that allows me to do things my way. That that allows me to be free. So he really upheld his freedom and his mission. And the story has many uh, turns to it, and eventually I am able to help Butch to get housing because he hits a crisis point of living outside. Um, but I, th- I think the important part is uh, that I want to convey to the audience is connecting to the meaning in people's worlds. And once you're accepted in, you're kind of at that point waiting for a window of opportunity uh, to do more. And in Butch's case, the window of opportunity came when there was a great blizzard and he wasn't able to get into the shelter and he had frostbite. Um, and I was able, since I had the relationship with him, uh, to discover that and to get him the medical help he needed and, and to be very involved in getting him over to a rest home. And then from there, he went back to the woods and then to housing. And we did a lot more work uh, once he was housed around memory impairment issues that he had and and uh, all sorts of things. So it was a very interesting journey uh, that went on with Butch, which also included reconnecting him um, to family. Well, we're about to run out of time, so what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think um, let me leave off with the idea of uh, the three keys to pretreatment, which is number one, to get where the client's at. Number two, to always ask ourselves, 
how does our words and actions resonate in the client's world? And three, to really understand that the engagement, the relationship process is the foundation of our work, while our skills and interventions required for common language development is the main tools. Okay, the book is Homeless Narratives and Pre-Treatment Pathways, and your website, jslevy.com? That's correct. All right. We want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Well, it's been a pleasure being here, wherever here may be. <laughs> and everyone, come back next week at this same time. Our guest will be Dr. Marlene Winnell, who is the author of Leaving the Fold, who will be talking about recovery from fundamentalist religion. So see you all then, and good night. Good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.